As a liturgical church, you know that we follow the church calendar. And at this point, we're halfway through the church year. Having celebrated the great feast of Christmas, Epiphany, Easter, the Ascension, Pentecost, and most re recently, the Trinity. In these great feasts, we've seen and heard salvation history reenacted, and now we let those grand events do their good work in our souls and our lives day to day. We settle into the season that's called ordinary time, the next half of the church calendar. Ordinary time doesn't mean ho-hum, business as usual. It can be a season of great challenge, a season for steady and significant growth in our Christian lives as we reread and renew our acquaintances with the teachings of Christ. We do that week after week through the gospel readings. And those gospel readings highlighting his teachings remind us of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The gospel reading this evening from Matthew 10 records some of the best known words of Jesus on the subject of discipleship. Shake the dust off your feet. Sheep among wolves. Whoever confesses me before people, I will confess before the Father. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Take up your cross and follow me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. At first glance, it may look like just a jumbled mishmash of diverse sayings that Matthew had brought together. But when you step back and look at the whole of Matthew 10, including the key passage for this evening, you see that these words are all related to what life is going to be like for the disciples once Jesus has left the scene, as he has ascended to the Father, when he is no longer physically present among them. The picture Jesus draws is, in places, alarming. It's a compelling snapshot of what life looks like for each of these disciples as they seek to live their lives in obedience to his call on their lives. It's a story of risk and reward, a story of calling and courage. And I want you to hear in this, this is your story too. This is my story too, about living our lives for Jesus, openly, honestly, courageously, in a world that doesn't always have the welcome mat out and can be and often is a hostile place at times. Matthew 10 begins happily enough. Jesus confers great authority on the 12 disciples. He gives them power to perform miracles and he provides them with a hopeful message to proclaim. Great. Who wouldn't sign up for that assignment? Jesus sends them out in gentleness, telling the disciples that it's not their job to fight when the going gets rough. They're not to browbeat people with the gospel. If people don't like what the disciples have to say, then they're to move on to the next village. Simple as that. If they're arrested, they're not to call some high-powered lawyer, but to let the Holy Spirit speak through them, providing them with on-the-spot defense counsel. 
not a bad perk in discipleship, although I think all of us would wish and hope that it doesn't come to be our experience that we're arrested and would need this perk. But we do know around the world, around the world, Christians face that kind of onslaught. The disciples are to be gentle souls, loving proclaimers of the gospel. They are not to be warriors. They are not to be shrill. They are not to hang around where they're not clearly wanted. Their lives need to be consistent with the gospel of grace they proclaim. Their very demeanor must mirror God's love. The chapter begins sounding these notes of nonviolent, loving gospel proclamation. So far, so good. But as Jesus continues to prepare the disciples for life and mission in the world, his words take on an alarming tone. The outlook becomes threatening rather quickly. Despite their grace-filled message and gentle demeanor, the disciples are going to find themselves in trouble. Despite a message of love, they themselves will be hated. Despite their transparent witness to God, they will be called devils. Worse still, their words will bring about division within families because of the disagreement that will swirl around Jesus and his gospel. We can imagine they've already experienced some of this. They had to leave their homes and work and families to follow Jesus, and their families didn't always understand even Jesus' immediate family. And now Jesus was saying it could get worse. And if all of that isn't surprising enough, Jesus declares in verse 34, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. The word sword Jesus is referring to is not an actual sword. We know that because he rebuked the use of a sword quite clearly in the Garden of Gethsemane when Peter took a sword in hand to defend Jesus. No, sword Jesus speaks of is a metaphor for separating between those who believe and those who don't, even if it's in one's family. Early on in the chapter, verses that we did not read, Jesus did point out that others would hate them because of him. Which raises the question, why is Jesus and why is the good news that he brings going to be so hated immediately for those 12? But even in our own day, what is the essence, the core of what lies behind the negative, sometimes even violent reactions which some have to the Christian faith? Well, to be honest, sometimes it's a re reaction to some Christians' attitude in behavior rather than a reaction to the gospel itself. Yes, sometimes Christians are ridiculed, dismissed, and even hated because they themselves are glaringly unchristlike. Others are reluctant to consider the gospel or even hold contempt because of the checkered history of the church. And that checkered history comes even into our own day through the, high, the headlines we have heard in recent years. In these ways, and in many more besides, it's not difficult to know why the gospel has been despised and rejected. The good news of the gospel of Christ becomes misshapen and polluted when those who hear the message are themselves 
the greatest hindrance to its being believable and viable. May, by God's goodness and grace, in our constant awareness of our own actions, may we be protected from doing or saying foolish things that send people away from Christ and his church. Yes, flawed Christians can be the problem. But in Matthew 10, Jesus seems to assume that the disciples will not be hypocrites. Jesus assumes that the disciples will be innocent doves and vulnerable sheep who will faithfully proclaim the good news. But even still, Jesus predicts all manners of persecution, rejection, and hatred. Apparently, it's not just the church at its worst that will be rejected, but the church at its very best, too. The heartbeat of the gospel is grace and love, forgiveness and renewal, hope and joy, all attractive virtues, to be sure. Yet there is something even in the purest proclamation of the gospel that doesn't sit right with a good many people. What is it that can put people off so? In a word, surrender. Surrendering to God's offer of forgiveness. Surrender has a radical sound to it. It conjures up pictures of white flags and raised hands and admissions of guilt. The picture isn't so far from wrong. Surrendering to God's offer of forgiveness means acknowledging that you are, that I am, a sinner, which many people don't think they have a problem with in the first place. Have you met those people? <laughs> we all have, and we all were at one time. The attitude of many often is thanks, but no thanks when it comes to surrendering their lives to Christ. Another word that people stumble over is grace, believe it or not. Few words shine more brightly or more suggestive of God's generous spirit and boundless love than grace. Who wouldn't welcome God's grace? <laughs> Perhaps you remember in Sunday school way back, it's God's riches at Christ's expense. You ever hear that in Sunday school? Yeah. I've lived long enough to remember that. Well, maybe it's the person who refuses to believe that they need any help, any outside help. Anyone who's convinced that human intellect, personal skill and achievements, or past sum total of good life, well lived, ought to be enough to make peace with God, that's assuming that there is a God in the first place. Accepting grace, some think, implies helplessness, inadequacy. Embracing grace says something about the whole sweep of one's existence. And for some, that's just too humbling a stance to take. Reverend Tim Keller, the former pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, who died just last month, and perhaps many of you are aware of that and who he was, and all of the remembrances of this good man and his ministry, whose pulpit ministry and writing have been a help to many over his 30 years in New York City. He would often say to non-believers and believers alike, cheer up, you're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine, and you're more loved than you ever dared hope. That was his message, not afraid to talk about sin, as that was the door to talking about God's goodness and grace. He boldly, lovingly, 
Winston Blay, over decades of faithful ministry, was not afraid to talk about those realities of sin in our broken world and the beauty and strength of God's saving grace in Jesus Christ. Like you, who knew him, who knew of him, I thank the Lord for his life and ministry and winsome witness. Back to Jesus. And again and again, Jesus continues throughout the discourse to underscore the hard truth that the way forward is not always going to be easy. He does so not to discourage, but to quite opposite, to encourage them, to stand firm, to take courage in the face of difficulty. I warn you about what's ahead so that you'll be ready to stand firm. Being his fully devoted followers, his disciples are beginning to recognize is going to be risky business. People will not always like the gospel they bring or the Jesus they preach. Many will remain indifferent, and some, as we've said, perhaps would even become hostile. Linda had an uncle who would become angry and belligerent every time he saw us, particularly when I started seminary. That seemed to heighten his dislike for us. He would be argumentative and hateful until he finally cut off the entire relationship. We tried to contact him over the years, but we never heard from him again, and to our knowledge, he died alone. Yes, there is risk involved, even risk of our own lives as other believers around the world know even in this hour, and the risk of being rejected by family or even close friends or that next door neighbor. Sharing in his ministry, we will share in his sufferings. Jesus was making that plain when he began this discourse, when he said, the student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house is called Beelzebub, how much more the member of his household? In other words, Jesus is being upfront with them. Jesus is saying, if the world gives me a bad time, and you see that and know that, and it's going to get worse, it'll give you a bad time too. Take courage. Take courage. All is not lost. Difficult people and difficult times are not the end of the story. We often want to stop there. Jesus is saying, no, no, take courage. Difficult people in difficult times are not the end of the story. The sort of truth will separate the people of the world into those who hear and believe and become followers of Jesus by an act of surrender to him. And others will turn away or even turn against you. Jesus continues, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, but not the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Isn't that a strange change of conversation there? Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. You are worth more than many sparrows. This is a great picture 
of God's care for us as we live as disciples, realizing it won't always go smoothly, but God will give us the moral courage needed, needed to stand and to do and to say and to be what's right. Yes, even in the face of death. That's hard for us to hear in this western suburb, the easiness of our lives, but to know that there are brothers and sisters in this world, in this hour, that are facing that kind of calamity. So what calamity might we be facing? And we all know what those things are. I not have to list them for you. It's, it's, it's being rejected, <laughs> not invited to the party, not getting the promotion you thought you should get because some people think that you're too open about your faith in Christ. A family member that says, what? You know, a little religion is fine, but hey, haven't you gone a little far with this? We had a friend years ago hearing about this sparrow, uh, sitting in her desk in a, in a big window and a small bird crashed into the wind, fell to the ground, and these verses immediately came to her mind about this sparrow that God cares for. She wrote a song on the spot. To the ground a sparrow falls, my heavenly father knows it all. I'm worth more than many sparrows to him. Don't worry or be afraid, my cares are on him laid. I'm worth more than many sparrows to him. Dallas Willard kind of wraps this all up in this, this enigma of what Jesus just said and then moving to talking about the sparrows. He says in the, in the book, The Divine Conspiracy, the only one to fear, Jesus points out, is him, or his father as the case may be, able to destroy both soul and body. Now this just happens to be the same one who gently cares for sparrows. Yes, there may be those that can kill the body, but there is one that can do both. But he is the one who cares for sparrows. And you're much more valuable than sparrows. Jesus knew too that sometimes the biggest test of faith may well occur within the family circle as we've given you an example of this uncle of Linda's. Jesus warns in verse 37, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. This doesn't fit our suburban, family-friendly view of Jesus. What kind of person would be so bold as to tell another person, you have to love me more than your own children, more than your mother or your father? As been pointed out by others, to be bold enough to make such a demand, you either must be the Messiah with the authority to demand that kind of allegiance, or you have to be literally crazy. Jesus isn't saying it's wrong to love your children or your parents. He's simply saying, love me more. Love me more. There's no hate your mama discipleship songs. You, don't, you won't find those. <clears throat> I don't think, John, there, there, is there such, such a song? No, he isn't saying you're not to love your children or your mother or your father. Just love him more. Jesus knows that's within us all to exalt someone or something above him. 
even something as good and as wonderful as family. It's within all of us to put something good in the place that's reserved for God alone. We need to take Jesus' words seriously. We've got to be careful. We've got to be careful. Jesus' ultimate concern is that we live in unity and in harmony with him. That he is, in fact, the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus addresses a second competing allegiance, if you will. We often put in the place that belongs to Christ alone, and that's ourselves. Anyone who does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me, Jesus said. Again, he's using a metaphor. This time it's a cross. A cross is a symbol of death and execution. It's a dramatic, drastic symbol of a disciple's call to live like their master. Self-denial is not a popular message. To die to self? We're Americans. We're all about self-achievement, self-betterment. But Jesus came to dethrone, dethrone every illegitimate king over our lives, including ourselves. He demands our full allegiance. We are to place our whole lives on the line just as Jesus did. Yes, there are risks involved in following Jesus. Jesus knew that only too well. But every risk pales in comparison to the reward, which is true life, resurrection life in Jesus. He said, whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Again, quoting Tim Keller, an exemplary follower of Christ, he kept his eyes on the cross. He wrote, on the cross, Jesus was putting himself in our lives, our misery, our mortality, so that we could be brought into his life, his joy, and immortality. Anybody who has tasted the reality of God knows anything is worth losing for this, and nothing is worth keeping if I'm going to lose this. That's how Tim Keller lived his life in response to that verse. Reverend Keller believed Jesus when he said, whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Now in heaven, at home, at home with his Lord and Savior, the one he loved and served, Tim knows the fullness of that holy promise full well. He's more alive than he's ever been. And that is our hope as well. If we follow him, we will be more alive now, but in that future, more alive than we've ever been for time immemorial. The gospel readings, and this is the concluding thought, the gospel readings in this ordinary time. So I've tried to brought you into the ordinary time, recognizing in the gospel readings through ordinary time, we're exposed to the teachings of Jesus to renew and reread and rethink what that's all about and how it shapes our discipleship in this day, in this time, in this community. As we read them and rehearse them 
and perhaps even memorize them again. These readings in ordinary time remind us that being followers of Jesus is more than simply believing in Jesus. That's certainly true, and I'm not making light of that. As the end of my remarks, we come to the Apostles' Creed and, and talk about what we believe about Jesus. But no, these teachings of Jesus are about do we believe Jesus? We believe in Jesus, but these teachings once again remind us, do we believe Jesus? In this message to those disciples, as they were about to launch their life and ministry in obedience to him, he is saying to them as he has warned them, take courage, stand firm. And that's his message to me, to you, friends of the Savior. Take courage. Take Jesus at his word. He does, in fact, know what he's talking about. Uh, that's, that's Dallas Willard once again. He just, he just lays it out there for you. He does, in fact, know what he's talking about. And he can be trusted. Always. Always. So let's lean the full weight of our being on his trustworthiness. Certainly in difficult times, but in all times. Amen and amen.